Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And today, Lex Pelger will be continuing with a series of discussions about my favorite plant, cannabis. His first guest today is Dr. Matthew Markaret, whose work also involves studying epilepsy, and uh, that also holds a great deal of interest for me. You see, my mother was epileptic, and in fact, at the moment of my birth, she experienced a grand mal seizure and almost died. So having lived as a child, worrying about my mother's health, uh, well, it gives me great joy to know that today, well, at least in a few places here in the U.S., some people who suffer from epilepsy are gaining a degree of relief through the use of cannabis. I feel that I should add, however, that even though 83% of adults in the states now favor legalization of cannabis, according to U.S. federal law, it's still a class one felony in every city and state in the land. Unfortunately, the 17% of the people who don't favor legalization are either very religious or happen to be in positions of power of one kind or another, and keeping cannabis illegal is still a very lucrative business for the prison, police, and drug testing industries, as it also is to drug company lobbyists who bribe the politicians to continue enforce laws that prevent the public from obtaining a low-cost, non-patentable form of medicine. But, uh, alas, progress still continues to be made every day. And part of that progress comes from the work of dedicated professionals like the two gentlemen that Lex Pelger is bringing to the salon here today. So, now, here's Lex. For Marijuana Month here on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0, today we feature interviews with not one, but two doctors. That makes this our Cannabis Paradox Pair Odox show. And thank you to Robert Heinlein for that joke. I talked with Dr. Matt Markert when he came over to help with scanning for the Psychedelic History Project, along with his partner and their pet parrot, Anzac. By the way, the Instagram to follow the history is at the Psychedelic History Project. And to follow the adventures of their African gray parrot, that's at Anzac the Parrot. And just for the record, the parrot has a third more followers than me. And I can see why. Anyway... My talk with Matt was fascinating because while he's a trained MD, PhD in neurochemistry research, he's most interested in altered states of consciousness. And there's no program to study anything quite like that. So he chose to focus on epilepsy because it's a widely recognized clinical form of unusual brain states. And anyone who's read about temporal lobe epilepsy will see why it's so fascinating. If you're curious to learn more, one great source is the book Hallucinations by Oliver Sacks. So with Matt's focus on epilepsy, he naturally hears a lot from parents and patients and advocates like myself with very high expectations. And so he shares with us a medical doctor's nuanced perspective on the use of cannabinoids with epileptic children. It was quite an enjoyable conversation in Bruce Damer's barn, while Anzac the Parrot looked on and occasionally offered encouragement. Another engaging conversation follows with Frank Sacco, who I originally met at the Cannabis World Congress and Business Expo in New York City. He's a doctoral student in clinical psychology at William James College, who works closely with his father, also named Frank Sacco. 
Frank's father has been a leader in the field of using altered states of consciousness for healing, and he worked with the famed Dr. Stanley Krippner himself. Now the Sackos are creating an online healing community for people wishing to explore the healing available from altered states of consciousness induced by cannabis, as well as many other methods. You can learn from them and share your own story at virtualhealingcommunities.org. So on with the show, and I hope you enjoy this paradox. Hello, everybody. This is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0, and I'm very happy to be here with Dr. Matthew Markert. Hi, Lex. Hey. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, and thanks for helping with the Psychedelic History Project today. Yeah, man. This is great. It's like a little smorgasbord of who knows what. I mean, some of it is newspaper clips with with archived numbers and stuff and it's very systematic and other things it's like you can tell whoever was putting it together had an idea they didn't tell anyone about we're just looking at it later (laughs) (laughs) well despite being a doctor with lives to save uh he is here helping today um and i wanted to ask first about what brought you to being a physician oh sure um so i started out um being interested in the mind and interested in information. And um, as a matter of convenience, I just went into it through engineering and computer systems. And then I got hurt pretty bad. And um, I was in a, a diving accident. I uh, crushed my C5 in three places and I was paralyzed from the, the chest down, well, from the collarbone down. Um, and I had some experiences there as a patient that helped me understand what should happen and what things could be like. And I had a couple doctors and I, again, at this point in my life, I didn't really know what I was doing. Honestly, I was spending most of my time in college, not going to class and watching adult swim with my friends. Like that is how I was spending most of my time. Um, and I was really kind of searching for a reason to do stuff. And I was really just still showing up to class sort of. Um, and I kind of had what, Samuel Jackson said alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity, which is um, because I didn't know if I was going to get better and I didn't know um, what was going to happen. And uh, I had this vision of being pushed around in a wheelchair by Cub Scouts five years in the future, like I had done for handicapped people when I was younger. Um, And that kind of bugged me out. And so I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get better and I'm going to put myself in a position where I can help prevent people from having to be tortured by not knowing the answer to that question and i'll become a physician i'll become a research physician i'll work in um um, neurology and paralysis and trying to prevent that um and uh then i hit the um uh patient assisted medication delivery system button three or four times and i went to sleep and then i uh um got out and took a course called drugs and human behavior, which was basically a psychology course in physiology with my best friend. And it was all about the ways that drugs affect the body and the mind. Um, I was living in a house with people who were doing drugs and I thought it looked a little scary. Um, one of my friends was doing GHB and I said, I don't know what that is, but I don't like it. So I'm going to find out what that is. So I took a class and as a result of that class and a result of my injury, I said, I know what I want to do now. I'm going to be a doctor. Um, and he became, he and I both made that the same decision and he ends up going to Palmer chiropractor school and open a practice in Philadelphia. And I am now completing my clinical neurophysiology fellowship and it just took a while. So that's how, um, that's how that happened. Uh, the, um, interesting part was that I had, since I had spent the first couple of years 
not really doing well and making the decision that you want to be a doctor when you have a GPA of 1.9 is not the easiest thing to do. And I had a lot of people telling me, you should stay in research, <laughs> which is what I was doing at the time. Um, you know, so then that story gets longer if I tell it that way, but that's, you know, that's how I became a doctor is I got hurt. I had a, a refocus of my priorities and, uh, my first real physiology exposure in the college level was on the subject of the interaction of, um, uh, various drugs of every kind. I mean, also antidepressants and things like that was really how the class was really about, but it was clear neurotransmitters was something I could really bite my teeth into. Hmm. And so on the path, how did your current specialization uh, get more clear to you as you move forward? And so I, that's, that's a great question, too. So I'm, I'm presently a neurologist who um, subspecializes in epilepsy and clinical neurophysiology. That's what I do every day. Um, but that very easily could have been psychiatry. And in fact, when I applied to residencies, um, I applied to 12, 13 residencies in psychiatry. And I only threw on a few neurology ones at the end. Um, and the reason is because I wanted to study the mind. But there's no medical training in consciousness. And the question for me was just, how do I want to get there? Do I want to get there by studying the symptoms, psychiatry, and studying the methods? Or do I want to get there by studying the pathways? And there's an old joke that goes, um, if you can, you know, if you can find the target in the brain that is the place where the thing happens, that's neurology. And if it's not, it's psychiatry. I was, if I'm, if I wanted to study consciousness, there is no fellowship in consciousness. There's no place to do that. So I had to ask myself, what is an outcome that I could study that I absolutely knew was happening? Even studying depression is, is hard. It's subjective measures, right? And so seizure, which is the nature and the fundamental unit of studying epilepsy is a thing, you know, happens. First of all, you can see it. Second, the person tells you they think they had one. Third, if you put an electroencephalogram on somebody, an EEG, there is a definable set of agreed-upon characteristics which, when present, is what we say a seizure is. So you can do research on it, and it is a discrete outcome. And that is extremely important for me in order to determine whether I'm studying consciousness and knowing that what I'm studying is a thing that is happening and not just a subjective, I'm ascribing my own ideals to this. So I wanted to study consciousness in a way that I knew could be studied. So that's how I found epilepsy. Because if what I want to do is to interact physically using either the drugs that we use or much more even bioelectric forms of control to manage the consciousness, I need to know what the, thing, the symptom was I was managing. Um, plus, there's only really one place in the world if you want to do clinically supported medical grade research that involves information transfer with electrodes that go into the brain. There's only like two things that you can do. One is movement disorders. And the other is epilepsy. And I'm not interested in movement disorders. So that's how I found epilepsy. Hmm. And so it probably with the huge range of displays that people have with epilepsy centralized in all these different parts of the brain, you probably get to see all of these different altered states. And instead of the altered states described by heads, which are dismissed as silliness, these are altered states that are accepted by the medical establishment as something, you know, strange, weird, and true. It's so funny, man. Like, I've, you know, I grew up and even through medical school thought a seizure was 
shaking on the ground, you know, arms back and forth, solid urinating. I, that's what I thought a seizure was. And for some people it is, but the vast majority of them are not. They're sitting there and they're talking to you. And while they're talking to you, they just have a little bit of a space between the things that they're saying. And they're having seizures during those spaces. Um, they don't know it though. They have like, it might be more of a five or six or second, seven second gap, but that's a seizure or their seizure is I've seen this where a young lady is sitting in bed and she's on her iPad and she's playing video games and she reaches forward and she grabs a big gulp and she's drinking the big gulp and she just keeps drinking the big gulp. And if you look closely on the video, you can see that the big gulp's actually empty. She started having a seizure and she has the seizures in the part of her brain that deals with craving and thirst. So her seizure is she craves it, but then she gets kind of stuck and she's not forming new memories. She doesn't realize that she's kept drinking and she's just sitting there continuing to drink her soda. It's called periectal drinking. Wow. It's fascinating, right? Well, throw into that the seizure in the part of the brain that deals with deja vu. Very common, very common seizure is deja vu. Um, or the part that deals with little flashing lights or remembering a memory from before. And it's now we're talking about consciousness, right? So that's a great way to study it. And you also get exposed to the, to the, one of the few branches of science where people can talk about, uh, cannabinoids as mm -hmm. medicine and not get laughed out of the place. How many of your patients come to you and they, they've heard about cannabis for severe childhood epilepsy and things like that? So I can give I couldn't give a number. I can say the number is increasing. I can say that. Um you know, the what's interesting is we're at a we're at a forefront for this conversation. And we're at the forefront for two reasons. And the, when I give talks to patient advocacy groups or the um you know, groups of parents of children with epilepsy or for that matter even just like normal or um you know, legalization groups that have nothing to do with medicine but it gets brought up. Um, or when I give talks to physicians that have nothing to do with cannabis, I say the same thing. And when I say, if you're a doctor who thinks that cannabis has no medical use, you're wrong. And if you're a patient that thinks cannabis has no medical side effects, you're wrong. You know, if you're just saying, well, it definitely cures cancer. No, I don't know whether it might sometimes for something, but it's not true that it definitely does cure cancer. And so, um, the question that you're asking how it's a very interesting interface. So, it's very, very common for the parents of children with epilepsy that's not well controlled by other medications to bring up cannabis at some point. It's far more common out here in the West and in Colorado and California than it was in where I, where I trained in Kansas City. But even then, it would, would be brought up. Um, what's hard, and you mentioned about not laughing people about it, it's not crazy to bring it up. But what's hard is it's getting harder to filter through what does and doesn't work. And so... There is a big um, professional organization behind promoting cannabis as medical use, even in places where it has no business being promoted for that. And so the it probably is true that it absolute it probably is true that cannabis has good medical utility for certain kinds of genetic epilepsy, Gervais syndrome, Du syndrome, West syndrome, in that it is useful to have the conversation about that drug the same way we do about the other drugs, many of which don't work, that are FDA approved. It's absolutely useful to have the conversation about that drug. And I would go so far as to say that in places where it's medically allowed, responsible neurologists are having that conversation, even if the conversation is about why we shouldn't try it yet. What's hard 
is when patients are bringing up that they want to try it instead of trying another drug that we definitely know works. And that's the hard part. You know, if a patient has brings up to me, uh, hey, doc, I want to try cannabis. First question I have for us, how much do you want to try? In what form? Uh, how often? What will we decide failure looks like, etc.? And they never have answers to that questions. And I can't medically, ethically, responsibly say, well, in that case, I'll just make something up and see how it works for you. That's, that's not okay. The basic question is, if I do that, and the patient has a life-threatening event, whose fault is it? Right? And it's not a matter of being sued. This person's coming to me for help, and I'm trying to take care of them. Now, when they come to me, and they've got a, a young child with a medically intractable genetic epilepsy, for which I know that many of the drugs either don't work or they do work, but the kid is so sedated they don't have their baby back. Now we're having a different conversation about lifestyle management. That's a form of palliative care that I think everyone deserves and has the right to have the conversation because I don't know that something will work better. But if you had epilepsy, Lex, and you have two or three seizures a year, that's a problem, right? If you have a seizure, you can't drive for three months, you can't take care of your family six months in some other places, that's a big deal. It can change your life for you to have a seizure. You crash your car, it could kill somebody. It's a big deal. Um, but if a small dose of a medication that has nearly no side effects would definitely prevent you from having seizures, and it's been three years, and we give you on a trial and the medication takes it away and you have a seizure again, we put you back on the medication. You say, well, I want to try cannabis instead. I do think the conversation at that point should be, well, here's the risks. If you have seizures, will you be okay with that? Because you might. That's your right to choose that. But what's hard is a doctor doesn't have a dosage profile that they know works that they can try which means they're just out in wild wild west territory and that is an extremely difficult medical medically ethical question for a physician whose first prerogatives to do no harm and so um i think it's important that this stuff gets brought up i do think people are asking about it more because they're they're less at risk for being kicked out of practices and stuff like that for it i think that's i think that's the important thing um um, the approach I have first is, you know, are we dealing with something that is likely to work for you and what is the actual method that you want to try? Um, I think as long as we do that, the, the chance of harm is pretty low when it comes to having conversations, when it comes to actually testing it, it's a very different story. And that's why we don't have, we do not have positive evidence for the use of cannabinoids in adults yet. That might, that day might come. It's just, it's not here yet. Mm-hmm. Um, though I, I, I suspect in here some patient advocates thinking that for the side effects from most of these medications that, uh, maybe for kids, you'd say CBD would be a safer alternative to be trying, um, than some of the other anti-epileptic medications. So the, the question was, is CBD safer than other anti-epileptic medications? No, I just know that I know a bunch of advocates who would... Be sure it is and would say that it's irresponsible as physicians to be starting with other medications that probably have more side effects so than CBD does. I have heard that said to me several times. That's what I wanted to ask. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't necessarily believe, but I wanted right. to ask it. So here's what I can tell you. that so, so that's a convenient position to hold when the one who suffers the consequences isn't you. And so I have had patient advocates say that to me um, 
who, who do not actually themselves have a child that is being treated for this. And I have had this conversation absolutely with parents who do. I have had it said to me, can we start with this instead? At which point the conversation then, I mean, when I was in Kansas City, it was moot because it wasn't something that we could do. In Missouri, you can actually get CBD. It's very hard, but you can do it. It is legal. Um, so the, the basic question then is, how, you know, how long do you want to try it where if it doesn't work, you would move to another medication, right? That's a fair question. And that's an informed consent. That's something they should do. So there, there was something said in that statement like that ha does not have side effects. So the actual numbers for CBD, and I'm going to quote this poorly. Davinsky's got a great article on the subject that came out this past year. Um, Davinsky's the director of epilepsy at NYU. He's one of the, he's one of the hardest working brains we've got on this subject. Um, and, uh, you know, they took several hundred patients who had been given this for a various number of reasons, usually for the syndromes I described, Gervais, Deuce, Gervais syndrome, I think is the kind that um, Charlotte had of Charlotte's Web. Um, I'm fairly sure of that. It might might have been West. Um, and these are bad epilepsies. Drugs don't, they're, they're, they're rough. Well, there was a high percentage of children who had what are called serious side effects. And they did it in, the average number of drugs these kids were already on was like four drugs they were already on. But the way they did the study was nothing else had changed. So that the, the issue was the side effect was attributable to the CBD. Mm. All right. So it's so what I'm getting at is it is not true to say that there are not a potential serious side effects. And the problem is that um, until we have, you know, right now we've got a case series of like a few hundred patients. Until we have 10,000, you know, until we do a real clinical trial. I don't know what they are. That's not a reason not to try it. So let me talk a little bit about what they, the side effects are. Most common side effect reported is somnolence. All right. So it, uh, th that the that the kids are tired and, and dragged out, and it can be often said, well, they're also on benzes, they're also on other things. All right, that's fair. Most common serious side effect was anaphylaxis. That's a big deal. All right. That's an allergic reaction. Now that was not very common, by the way. That was uh, like ten, twelve percent. Made might have been less than that. Um, and, and I may have been misquoting that. It might have been just a strong inflammatory allergic reaction. It might not have been actual anaphylaxis, like they didn't have to give epi. But that, that's a big deal. Here's the thing. It probably wasn't the CBD. It probably was the, the nut oil or something like that that it was suspended in. It probably wasn't the actual CBD. So that's fair, right? So, But how many parents, when they buy CBD oil, know and can tell me that they know that thing was not put together on a line that had some kind of thing that they could have an allergy to? They don't because they don't have quality control. So, you know, that doesn't mean don't use CBD. It just means that if you're asking me as a physician, what should I start with? I am unqualified to know which oil is supposed to be the one I could try to use because I don't have a system set up where someone has already determined it's safe. And if I give it to your kid and that person has, is intubated in the hospital in three days, whose fault is that? That's my fault. I did that to your kid, right? That's a nightmare. And so when an advocate says that to me, um, I want to make sure we have that conversation. Other common side effects are uh, uh, blood pressure drop, not necessarily in a serious way, but it's a drop. Um, blood pressure drop, you know, CBD, I get, get said to me, has effects on blood pressure. Okay, I can't tell you what they are exactly, but I can tell you their blood pressure goes down for about an hour after they take it. It's probably the CBD. Not in everybody, but it's a thing that was reported. Okay, you ever stand up too fast and get lightheaded? That's a blood pressure drop. If your kid stands up and bounces his head off a corner because their blood pressure dropped too fast and they passed out, whose fault is that? What's the measure? What's the number? How much can you do it? What's the safe amount for a toddler? I don't know. So that's something just to keep in mind. doesn't mean don't do it. 
doesn't mean don't do it. It just means that when I use Lamictal, another popular medication, I know those side effects more. Um, That's all. Yeah. This will come in time, by the way, with more use. I think the solution to this is just more careful use. I would argue it should be done under a research protocol. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, the other harm reduction thing I always like to try to mention because I don't see it said enough is that CBD has been shown to stop an enzyme in the liver uh, that's important for breaking down drugs, the CYP450. Fantastic and, point. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. And the main thing, you know, if you, and I know it sounds esoteric, but really, if you have uh, someone who's on a medication where they're not supposed to be drinking grapefruit juice, uh, that grapefruit juice also breaks down this enzyme. So right. if you're on that kind of medication, you should be careful taking that much CBD because it could be that the drug is not getting broken down to what it should be right. or the drug's not getting broken down. It's building up in your system. And it's a piece of harm reduction people don't talk about enough around the cannabis that's why world. I'm so, that's why I'm so glad you brought it up, you know, um, th- because it, it's, again, it's it's just something to know, but there's also different sub-factors for CYP. And so there are definitely drugs that can inhibit the amount of only, I'll give it like, like Lamictal or something like that. And there are others that actually induce it. So it's less, there's less of the drug in your system. So it might be overdose or you might be, it's like you're not taking it. You're actually inducing the metabolism of that drug. And all the things you're saying are reasons why it should be studied more so we can find what how it's used. The, the cannabinoids are a relatively new frontier of basic science um, receptor work that needs to be done. And I am worried about the Petri dish for that discovery being in the lives of living children in the clinic who are going home with... I hope the concentration of oil that it says on the outside, on the inside, because it isn't always, you know, it's not a reason not to do it, but I, I worry about that being our approach when they have terrible diseases, like the ones we described, we feel differently about trying because we kind of know what the landscape looks like based on only what we have and any improvement for some is an improvement. That's why people are petitioning for compassionate use exemptions for things like CBD um, and that's why, frankly, why states have allowed it. Um, that's, that's, that's the reason why. Um, but generally speaking to run headlong is not a harm reduction strategy. It's not even a risk averse strategy. I would say it's, it's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. But it's worth having the conversation for every person. That makes sense. I just hope that they talk to me about it because yeah. I'm not even necessarily going to talk somebody out of it. In fact, Sometimes a patient comes to me and says, hey, doc, just so you know, I'm I'm using medical cannabis for my ulcers. Here's my card. This is what I, I use it for because they're an epilepsy patient who also does this. But couldn't I also up my dose and not take this anti-epileptic drug? Um, you know, and so that's a conversation that should be had. And uh, what I'm glad is that at least the word's getting out that that's a conversation they should have with their doctor. And and that actually brings me to the last topic I wanted to, to talk over with you about your advocacy out there doing grand rounds, mm-hmm. talking to other doctors, and who are a notoriously conservative group when it comes to drugs that are deemed illegal, even though there might be some efficacy there. What has been effective for you as you talk to fellow physicians to help them understand that some of these drugs are worth taking a look at in a different way? Data. Data. I mean, you're, you're right that they're conservative, but I would say most physicians – are conservative about doing things that they don't know works, regardless of legality. They're just 
they're very, they're nervous about doing harm because it's their responsibility. And and for most people, that's not even lawsuits we're talking about. We're just talking about doing right by their patients. Um, <clears throat> so the thing that's most effective is data. You know, there was a big study done by um, David Gloss and um, uh, a few years ago in Annals of uh, I think it was in Annals of Neurology. It might have been just in neurology, but um, about just kind of a systematic review of all the papers on cannabis. Um, uh, Gary Gronseth was the last author on that. And it was, here's what we've got. It was everything that was that either described THC or cannabis and things like that. And it provided good information, the best, the best data, which is to say level one randomized control trials where it was done in, in patients. The best data was for subjective patient reporting of spasticity in people at MS. And the thing that the doctors will say to me when I bring that up is, yeah, well, they were subjective. They're just high. And my point is, well, you prescribe things for their subjective utility like Benadryl for headaches all the time. Why do you care? If they say it makes them feel better and their self-reported disability score is lower, they're telling you that their quality of life is better and there's a quality of my measure. And that point seems to resonate with people. We have good randomized control data on this particular method and... You already do this stuff elsewise in your practice for other things you have no problem for. Why are you making it a problem just because it happens to have the word cannabis in it when you've got no problem doing that for Benadryl, you've got no problem doing that for off-label use for Haldol for sleep? Are you kidding me? You have no problem doing that just because there's this piece of paper or somewhere. That, there's plenty of perfectly legitimate reasons to use medical caution with cannabis, and that's the name of my talk usually is medical caution and cannabis use. There's plenty of perfectly good reasons of caution, but that's not a good reason. And so data is helping and data, data helps resonate. It also helps resonate on the other side. When someone does come to me and say, it, it, it's definitely uh, uh, the right thing. And I say, well, show me your data. It's definitely the right thing for cancer. It's definitely the right thing for this. And I say, show me your data. And we go through it. The data isn't there. I have a PhD in epidemiology. I'm, I don't know everything about all data, but on this subject, I know more than many. And so I, I know what the data says, and it also helps patients be more understanding about why I wouldn't lead with that drug in them, and it might be more of a conversation. It also helps bring the walls down, I think, on both sides. Well, I think that's great for today. I really appreciate your take on on being a doctor out there advocating for reasonable use. I'm, I'm advocating for absolutely medic, uh, reasonable medical caution in use, but also... Um, just because we're unsure and we're not ready, I, I don't think that's a reason not to do it. You know, I, I think informed consent to me is the most important thing. And I think somebody has a right to do whatever they want to do with themselves and their own body. Um, in the medical community, it's a little tough because people listen to people in white coats. Um, but, uh, uh, but I think there's plenty of perfectly good reasons to be aware of doing things. And ignorance shouldn't be the only reason. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and actually, I shouldn't let you get away with asking one of my favorite final questions, which okay. is if you were in charge of how the laws around these things, either, either if you were a chief at NIDA or chief at a medical school or got to, to roll out the scheduling system, what would you want to see the most as a physician in the law? Well, scheduling is easy. In fact, the, the, the summary statement of that paper I discussed on, um, from the AAN by Gloss and, and um, Gronseth included in it a um, basically a position statement from the American Academy of Neurology. And the, the, the position statement from the American Academy of Neurology, of which I am a member, is that 
um, cannabis should not be Schedule 1. Um, it is not true that it has no medical use, which is the definition of Schedule 1. Um, there is there is no professional organ, medical organization of physicians that says it has no medical use. Um, even the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, we all have a position on this, and that is that it should not be Schedule 1. Um, I don't... What's hard is that the way that we schedule the law, the legal method is not the way that if I was in charge of things that I would um, do it because cannabis is not one drug. And so it's a little silly to talk about how I would schedule cannabis because there are things in cannabis that shouldn't be scheduled at all. And there are things in cannabis that should be scheduled given the fact that the scheduling system happens to exist anyway. I we have a different conversation about whether it should, but it does. So you know, THC, I would leave on the scheduling list. I wouldn't leave it schedule one, but it would still be in there because um, it's psychoactive. And if, you know, if Prozac is going to be scheduled, then THC should be. Um, but I would isolate the chemicals. And we're not dealing with the chemical, we're dealing with a plant. And that's the pro- That's one of the problems too. Um, but it, so I'm not sure if that answers your question. I mean, for starters, it shouldn't be schedule one, but that's an easy, that's hardly... A controversial position to hold these days. I the challenge I find is people saying that it should remain Schedule One, um, and the only arguments I hear are poor ones about addiction and slippery slope and nonsense. Yeah. Um, as far as I mean, the thing the thing about it is once you make it Schedule Two, a lot of the other things we're talking about change because now you now there's it's very difficult to fund a clinical trial when you're not sure if you'll be federally charged for it while you're doing it. Right. And so it's, that's once it's schedule two and you've isolated the thing that someone can make a medication out of to actually dose test. Right? You, you can't run a clinical trial in any sensible way. If you have varying amounts of terpene, CBD, THC, and different ingestion, there's no, you would never run a, I would never run a clinical trial that for blood pressure medication. I'm certainly not going to do about something that affects the brain. So, you know, but if I was, if I had my druthers, I would just make it so we can control for safety the way we would anything else. You know, yeah. we use arsenic in chemotherapy, right? We use platinum that can kill you. We just control the dosage, you know, control the method. Uh, and in fact, you've actually seen the controlled NIDA federal government weed a time <laughs> or two, correct? Yeah, I have seen G13. I have seen it. Um, it's, I don't think it's really called that. It's just called the University of Mississippi's, you know, new shipment, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, I worked at NIDA. And um, I saw it while I was there. And um, and I remember, so what I remember was when I was in high school and college, hearing the legend of G13, American Beauty came out. They talked about G13 and how it was this incredible thing. And then I actually saw it and it was like, that looks like dirty brickweed. What is that? Um, and interestingly, I just met someone. I forget, her name escapes me at the moment. Um, who's at WashU St. Lou, who was doing a study on quality control testing using the official, the DEA um, using the strain. And what she was doing was just testing what they got and finding how much mold was in it. And the variability in THC content was all over the place. And what was really frustrating for her was she had permission to do cannabis studies and she wouldn't use it because she felt like it didn't meet her quality standards to do a really controlled trial. That's really frustrating. It's extremely frustrating. It's frustrating for researchers. Um, so yeah, I, I've seen it and I'm underwhelmed. All right. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. Dr. Matt underwhelmed with Nidus weed. <laughs> thank you so much for your work out there. Letting yeah, people know. You. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. And it's been a pleasure to it's talk been a today. Pleasure. Nice meeting you. Take All care. All right. Bye. Cheers. 
we are here with Frank Sacco, who works with, with the virtual healing community, and he's here to tell us more about how that started and how he came to it. Hello, everybody. It's a, it's a pleasure to be to be here today. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. So how did this yeah, virtual no healing community come about? All right. So just give you a little bit of background. Um, so I'm, I'm finishing my last year of doctoral studies in, in psychology. My father has been a psychologist now for over 45 years. And a lot of his early, early research really began in studying the altered state of consciousness through a lot of the experts in the field, with Stan, such as Stanley Krippner and Stuart Trumwell. And so him and I, we're like the same, you know, we have the, like the same mind and it's quite, it's quite interesting because, you know, now he's, he's, he's entering, he's getting close to seventies now. Um, but you know, it, it's really, truly amazing that he has been faced with a lot of personal adversity. He spent, uh, most of his career after really studying the altered states of consciousness, really, uh, really looking at violence prevention. And looking at that not only through the lens of bullying, but also through the lens of international research. And he has consulted with the FBI. And so I've, I've gotten to tag along with him for a lot of really cool experiences. And now as he gets towards the, the end of his uh, uh, career, and he's a little bit later in his life, we've been really faced with some really tremendous adversity, um, especially my father is currently going through his second bout of cancer treatment. Um, and this is what, where we really kind of spawned the idea. We had a lot of time. He also sustained a, an, an injury on his hip where he could no longer walk. So we're like, oh, God, things couldn't get any worse. Now, you know, he has to not only go through cancer treatment, but he also has to do it without the ability to walk. And so we, we've been facing a lot of adversity. And, you know, I'm living in the Boston area, so he had to get treatment in the Boston area. So him and I would sit down every day and, and we would talk. And so it was interesting. He has now returned back to his, uh, he's always been a humanist, you know, humanistic psychologist at heart. But now we want to really kind of return back to a lot of the, the research that he's done in the altered state of consciousness and which really kind of spawned, uh, the, 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 the conversation that, you know, you know, and he has used, uh, medical cannabis now, not only for his cancer treatment, but, you know, for, for uh, a majority of his life. So he's, he's a proponent of it. And as am I. And so we were talking and we were really, we were, we were really, really saying that, you know, when somebody goes to the dispensary, you know, who really tells them what to do with it? And so it's, it was quite amazing. And we're like, well, that's a, that's a good question. And so we decided to, to really come up with a method, which is called the cannabis healing method, which is using the, how do you really navigate the altered state of consciousness to self heal? How do you become your own? therapist how do you become your own healer and guide so we were talking about this and then it was like the ideas were flying he was up at all you know times of the night writing writing notes and we bought like a basic recorder and we started recording episodes and you know every day that i would go and visit him in the rehab you know we would you know see if we can go reserve a room and do a recording and it was a great way to keep his his mind really sharp and focused and we're getting all these really amazing, amazing ideas. So that's really where virtual healing communities, you know, started. So, um, you know, it was, it was quite fascinating because it was a really challenging time in our, in our lives. But this was actually a, a way for us to really kind of keep our mind focused on, on a goal. And so now what has really kind of opened up is, is this really cool methodology for medical cannabis, uh, you know, patients. 
Uh, he's lucky to have you, and you're lucky to have such a great way to learn. So as you were talking there, how did the cannabis healing method develop? Uh, what parts immediately became clear they were really important? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of important, it's mostly in our minds. You know, it's it's easy for the season, seasoned, uh, you know, cannabis users to know how much they need, right, how much they need to smoke. But sometimes for those who are maybe, maybe they're, you know, uh, receiving cancer treatment or maybe they have chronic pain, they have exhausted all medical uh, options, they don't want to try any psychopharm, you know, and cannabis, then they're really going to cannabis. And I, we really truly believe that cannabis is a, heal, it's a healing medicine, you know. So, so how, how do we actually provide a structure for that person to, to be able to find, find the right dose, right, to find the, to find the right strain? And we're really getting into the idea of kind of creating a healing ritual. So how do you use, rather than we're, we're, turning, uh, we're turning it from kind of a passive kind of uh, activity to really kind of guided and straightforward by using a uh, planning, planning, ritual, planning a healing ritual. You know, so exactly where in your home do you do this? Exactly how much of which strain do you like to use? It's a tempering process. And, like in med- meditation, it's, it's how do you set your intention? So even if you're the most seasoned cannabis user, maybe you're using it for creativity, right? So we're, we're really trying to figure out how do we get a person to maximize their, their, their healing and uh, to really, we really kind of get into levels of consciousness. That's one of our theoretical points, right? So we, we're looking at the ordinary state of consciousness. Then we're going to go down to the personal unconscious where a lot of, a lot of you know, persons uh, like conflicts are. That's where a lot of the emotional entanglement is. And below that, we, we really kind of also talk about the collective uncon- unconscious, which is a concept that is that is written about extensively. But that's where mo- the most creativity lies in this kind of connection to the to the universe, to every everything that has has been in existence since the beginning of time. And you, you can read about it a, a ton. So our methodology is based primarily off of that and we use visualizations and meditations and you know to you know which the altered state of consciousness is induced by cannabis and it also could be induced through yoga and through natural uh you know meditations and and stuff like that so what we do is we use both and we we really try to have the person explore those deeper level of consciousness and maybe unlock creativity or maybe to work their way through some of those difficult emotional entanglements um, because really, I think the medical, uh, the medical cannabis patient, there's, unless you have like a really cool therapist, you know, then you may be able to talk about this, right? But yet there's still no, there's still, they're still struggling with theory. There's a lot of research that's going on in the field, um, in, in, in being able to use cannabis for PTS treatment in, in veterans. Um, I know John Hopkins University is doing a tremendous amount of study, but the medical cannabis patient is really kind of left on their own. You know, there, nobody has really, uh, developed a way to to let them know that they can use this and and be followed right uh, there's no doc- once the medical cannabis uh, doctor kind of writes the script they really really kind of keep up with the person and so what we want to do is we want to provide a platform where we can help kind of foster and facilitate a community but we also provide a form of psychoeducation that is based off of uh, the principles in our in our healing method so um, one of them definitely being the levels of consciousness. Wow. So it sounds like people really get to direct their own uh, methodology here, what, what works for them. You're just giving tools and other people to rely upon, to learn from. 
Exactly, because we really believe that um, not only uh, one, even if you, you know, even if, you know, I've, I've done so many psychotherapy sessions, right? And I really, truly believe in the transformative nature of a psychotherapeutic encounter, right? In person. So we're very aware and we talk to people about that line of which maybe it, maybe you do need to go seek, you know, professional help. Maybe the depression is, when is the depression maybe a little too heavy or when is, when is the, when is the trauma maybe a little bit too traumatic where that maybe self-help isn't enough. So we, we understand that, but again, maybe somebody already has an established, uh, you know, therapist or an established psycho-oncologist, but what we want to do is what do you do when you're home? There's a lot of time when you're, when you're sitting, when you're sitting at home. And I, I know this with, with my dad, we have a lot of times where, you know, it's just all you, all you have to do is kind of ride out, you know, ride out the, uh, the intensity of the situation. And all you can think about is the, you know, the intensity of the illness. And, and so it's like, all right, so how do you, how do you help somebody that is fighting cancer or fighting chronic pain? Chronic pain is a big one. So, and we need to bring, we need to, we want to provide a platform that brings it to a person's home. So they never kind of really feel, kind of feel alone that they're going through this, this self-healing journey with uh, not only, not only us at virtual healing communities, but other members of the community. We want to turn the, we want to turn the person into their own healer. Uh, Dr. Stanley Crittman does an excellent one called uh, Finding Your Inner Shaman, um, which is, which is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and my, my father does a lot of really cool visualizations called like one of them is fighting your demons. So we've created a, we created a, almost like an internal theater with the idea of a visualization studio. We teach a person how to create their internal character, right? And use certain powers to overcome barriers and problems. Cause what you find is that, you know, whether, whether it's a, you know, life, you know, you know, a really intense, uh, chronic life threatening illness, You'll, you'll be faced with fear, right? Fear of death, right? Fear, uh, fear of what's going to happen if you leave your family behind. So all these things naturally come out of really intense situations. So, so my father does visualizations about turning those fears into monsters, right? And how do you, and he, he, he does a wonderful, uh, visualization of him really encountering this monster and being able to use a weapon to kind of defeat this monster, you know? So it's, we're creating a we're creating a theater for for uh, for a person to use their visualization, use their mind to to help heal their body and to improve well being. Wow, I mean that just sounds so appealing because it's it's not too mystical for a good materialist rationalist to go for that and understand that that would be helpful to have this theater of the mind. I guess I have to ask, though, do you get much pushback from more conservative uh, leaning therapists and people in the field? Yeah, see, where we draw the line is say this is, uh, you know, this is a method that is self-help. So if, if you are a, a professional in the field, we're, 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 that's good. We want to get your attention because really where it lies is, is, is in the research, like what John Hopkins is doing. And, you know, coming, coming from the field of psychology, um, and, and like research is absolutely essential. And we know that, you know, from the work, work that, you know, MAPS is doing and, and they're doing phenomenal work with MDMA assisted psychotherapy. You know, it's a, and any, anything that they write about that says, if you want to get into this field and, and research in a, in a professional realm, right, that you're going to face a lot of, you're going to face a lot of pushback. 
Um, but yes, here at Virtual Healing Communities, what we're really doing is this is self-help. This is, this is, this is a, we're, we're teaching, we're providing the scaffold and, and the, the person is really kind of driving the process themselves. And what I think is the most important part is that we want people, part of the visualization studio is that we'll have guitar loops that um, create a hypnotic vibe. We are going to have different soundscapes so that people can download. Most people have garage pins on their computers, you know, or have them on their cell phones. We want you to download a track. We want you to create your own, and we want you to record it. And we want you to share it to the, share it to the community because we really believe in the, the healing power of community. Like, uh, you know, Dr. Kutner talks a lot about, um, you know, his research with, with, you know, native, different indigenous tribes and, and Native Americans and the role of, of the, the healing power of, of community. And a lot of the, the healing rituals are done in a community. And we want to really try to capture that on a virtual platform. Um, but so I think in kind of back to, um, you know, speaking to, uh, some people that would push back, um, I said it's encouraged because, um, that will only help us in a more professional realm to kind of fine tune our, our research. But yet what we're doing is more focused on self-help and we are not, we are not providing medical advice. So if you go to a dispensary, what, what we're going to do is we have our cannabis technician training of which we want to help teach some of the, the basic concepts, the, uh, the skills and the principles, uh, to the cannabis technician to help, help that process. Um, but if there's questions, we're going to have them submit submit them to, to us, and we can answer it in a weekly podcast. So we won't answer things directly, but we want to collect as many, uh, kind of like a, like a kind of phenological research where you kind of just gather a lot of people's uh, responses, but also uh, pick out different themes, and we're going to answer them in a podcast. Um, but we really want to make sure that, it, you know, it's not a cop-out to say self-help. I think that it's, it's actually really important that somebody develops those skills. And it's not easy to develop those those skills, and so that's what we want to help a person do. Hmm. Storytelling as data. Yeah, that's exactly qualitative. Yeah, oh, that's really great. Now, I'm uh, the focus on community sounds wonderful. I was curious about other uh, tools used in combination because your your website lists such a great. Um, range of tools that your father liked using movement psychotherapy yoga tai chi physical therapy water aerobics <laughs> meditation self-hypnosis um do you find patients that come in that find certain combinations more often to be helpful for them combining with cannabis or any of those other techniques yeah i, I think the first that comes to mind is, is chronic pain i remember working with a with a patient who was 45 uh 45 years old uh, came in for psychotherapy, but he, you know, early in his 20s, he fell, he fell from a scaffold and, excuse me, uh, actually suffered a, a back injury. And so sitting, I, and me, myself, I've, I've had my own back surgery. So I understand that, that intensity of that chronic pain. And, but he, he has now experienced it, you know, every day since that, that injury. And so he, you know, sometimes he would actually have to lay down flat on the, on the floor before a psychotherapy session. But, you know, he is a person that it's interesting. So everything, it doesn't happen in isolation, right? So, you know, of course, you have chronic pain, but what do you use to treat chronic pain, right? So, of course, you know, he's, he's actually had to, um, you know, use painkillers, and which ended up getting to a problematic zone, and he was able to help. This is before I actually met him. He was able to use, you know, methadone to get it to a control level, 
then he's like, I also use cannabis, you know? And so I think that's, you know, it's a perfect example that, that chronic pain is, is, uh, is often treated with, with, uh, you know, with, with, uh, painkillers, but this, this person naturally sought out cannabis. They were using cannabis and, you know, I really encouraged that. But what I was really trying to get him to do was to, to go into the pool, you know, because for people that have chronic pain or that have fibromyalgia, neuropathy, the nerve, that nerve pain or any type of, uh, spinal injury, um, water aerobics is, is absolutely, is absolutely phenomenal. Wow. And if you look, you know, you know, dance, drum, any, anything that involves movement. I mean, before, before, you know, that's like the first thing to develop before any organized religion and before, before anything, dancing and drumming is at the core, uh, you know, of, 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 of human existence. So if you're able to stimulate some of those, some, some of those, uh, it's actually considered a chakra point, you know, and, uh, we also kind of talk a little bit about different chakra points as well, but that, that's one of the lowest chakra points is when it, you know, movement and dance and rhythm and, and, um, you know, it's, so I think that the first thing that comes to my mind is, um, you know, because movement, dance and, you know, martial arts, it creates a natural altered state of consciousness. If you ever, if you ever, if you're a martial artist and you ever done a kata, you know, it's a series and sequence of movements that kind of get you in a, in a hypnotic state where your mind and body just like become one. We talk a lot about the mind body connection, you know, how do you know, sometimes the mind gets really overloaded, maybe with anxiety, or maybe the body gets really overloaded with chronic pain. So how do we use self-hypnosis and the altered state of consciousness to balance that out? But, um, but we really think that, that those activities in themselves can create an altered state of consciousness. And the people don't realize we really want to get people to be familiar with that, that, with that, with that term, the altered state of consciousness, um, that you can achieve it through, you know, meditation. Uh, you can't achieve it through natural ways, but, uh, but we want to be able to help people that are struggling a little bit more to induce that altered state of consciousness with cannabis. And it's also very paired very nicely with, with martial arts and, and more body-based movement. Hmm. Oh, that, that's beautiful. It makes a lot of sense. I actually have a friend who is suffering from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and mm-hmm. the absolutely best thing for him, he says, is stoned yoga. Uh, he's at the six-year mark, which is a good survival rate, and he and it's a little bit of hashish and a little bit of yoga, and it's saved him, according to him. Mm. You know, and so hearing these stories, they they really they really like it, it gives me you know it gives me the goosebumps, you know, because what we would love you know for him to do is to tell his tell his story, you know, like we want to provide the platform where he can tell people what he has done to help with ALS, you know, it's. You know, we really like to think that we're, we're not like, we're not rigidly saying like just to use virtual healing communities, like to hear, to hear your friend's story, we want him to share that, you know, and maybe even recommend say like this type of hashish has has really helped. But also, you know, here's the yoga, here's the yoga studio I go to. I mean, we encourage that. We encourage people connecting to um, what we do in, you know, in our audio book is really um, we want people to create a ritual in their home and to dive deep internal. It's an internal journey and exploration of deeper levels of consciousness. But then we want people to go out into the external world and be able to, to explore and try new paths, try new things, try new experiences. Mm-hmm. And, but to hear your friend's story like that, it's, it's a perfect example of how I would love for him to write about that. And that's where we, we want to provide a space for people to kind of reflect, tell their story, 
and write and share. That's great. So if anyone listening wants to share their stories, what works for them, Virtual Healing Community is the place to do it. Um, now, I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about your story. I mean, because this – for someone pursuing a, a doctorate in clinical psychology, this stuff is pretty far – out there what was it like for you? <laughs> i mean at being a young person with a dad like uh dr sacco taking all these you know pretty out there modalities what what was your relationship to these altered states of consciousness and these types of drugs you know seeing it from the very early ages yeah so i mean you know uh some of my my father's uh, early research was uh actually in, in Jamaica, and it was a violence prevention program in the Sheffield and the Grill all-age schools, um, and it was, a, it was, a, it was, a, like, it was an amazing experience, and I have a lot of experience, you know, in global mental health, and uh, this year I just got back from, from Haiti as well with my uh, a group of uh, graduate students, and, and uh, it's kind of funny. It's walking a, it's, it's walking a, a, a fine line, right? Uh, I think that uh, you have to you have to kind of monitor what what you're saying, um, you know, because you know I have really radical views, but you know uh, you know when uh, when you're in a kind of fairly conservative uh, you know institution, um, you know only a small percentage may share those share those views. So, um, but I, I think that uh, you know as of currently right now. Um, you know, I think that I would be I would be in the minority who would uh, who would agree with it. But uh, it's it's something that I will. It's interesting though because you see that on a larger on a larger scale, right? You look how hard it is to actually do any research in this field. It's like for those who have the the courage and the passion to to use uh, you know psychedelics and psychotherapy, and um, you know it's you know it takes a it's a long arduous journey and you will be in the minority you will you will face more conservatives um but you know i think that that's what makes her a good scientist right is is, is you know who's push, pushing back but for my personal experience uh with my father um you know we go to jamaica and you know of, of, of course ganja is you know a really big part of rastafarianism so i would learn a lot about that and, and my uh my personal experiences I'm, I'm a huge festival i love i love fish i love omphries and so I, I love that collective, uh, you know, vibe. So myself, I've, I've, you know, gone to tons of festivals and tons of concerts and had, I've had my own experiences, both good and bad, and really understanding, you know, what those experiences mean. And I think some of the most intense experiences that I've, that I've had, um, has, it has really, and if you're going to look at the different levels of consciousness, you know, it's the stuff that gets really stuffed down and uh, you push it out of your mind, whether you're aware of it or not. Right. And you only, it's like Bob Marley. It's like you're running and you're running away, but you can't run away from yourself. So, um, and I think that's what a lot of the research says about using psychedelics and psychotherapy. And you know, if it's a if it's a life-threatening illness, uh, you know, how much do you really think about and challenge and and to reflect on something such as scary as that you, that you might not make it through, um, right? So, so if the more somebody you know kind of pushes that down, it's interesting how psychedelics have a way of. Uh, getting a person opened up. <laughs> so, uh, so I think that my personal experiences, uh, both good and bad, have have taught a lot about, uh, have taught me a lot about myself, but uh, but also how these different levels of consciousness work. Um, you know, and and uh, it's it's quite it's quite interesting. But as a professional, so I have the personal, which is is really kind of marked by uh, you know a lot of really cool. I really love the the group consciousness feeling of, of festivals and concerts and 
you know, or being in, you know, being in a, a massive, uh, you know, a massive auditorium with fish. It feels like you're in an organ, you know, like one cell. I love that feeling. So uh, it's interesting to uh, have those experiences. Um, but professionally, uh, it's interesting because it's in, in order to, to, to do this on a professional level, you have to uh, really, you have to really kind of work with, um, you know, with people that are like-minded and really focused on doing rigorous, you know, really, uh, you know, tight research. Of these drugs that are currently scheduled uh, and, you know, no medical value, if uh, the scheduling system wasn't there and you could use anything you wanted with your mental health patients, which of these uh, currently scheduled drugs would be most intriguing for you to, to be utilizing? If there was no schedule, it's interesting because I think it's it, it's um, it, it different 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 drugs would call call for different uh, different cases. I really think that, but um, regardless of what drugs work works best with what, I think it has to do with the the journey that it really induces and and and, and how one's able to guide somebody through those. Um, but I really think that the the, the research um, being done now with MDMA. MDMA and um, in, in in trauma is is absolutely fascinating, and it's it's one that would I think really because a lot of people think that you know what well, you're going to prescribe somebody ecstasy, and it's like well quite the contrary. And I think that um, you know um, I think a lot of uh, you know bigger bigger um, tech, uh, pharmaceutical companies might be a, a little threatened by something that you could you can give maybe once or twice or in a in a small you know twelve session. Uh, kind of, you know, setting that might have more profound, more life-changing uh, effects than than maybe something that you would have to keep using, um, you know, whether it be pharmaceutical. So I think that it's it's very it's really promising research in in um, you know what's what's being done now. But you can see that it's it's hard to it's hard to get the research done. And uh, you know, I think that uh, you know I have I have interest to continue to do that, but. I really think that, um, you know, I'm really right now currently looking at, you know, how to really turn the person into their own, you know, healer. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, I think that in itself is, is, is a challenge. Uh, and, you know, cause even it's interesting that even no matter what tools you have at your disposal, it's how do you really carve out that time for yourself? Right. Um, and, and that's what we, I think really are trying to do with this idea of planning a healing ritual. Um, but as for as for psychotherapy, and I mean, I think that might be something in the future that BHC might, you know, really move towards. But but right now, we really want to kind of make it focused on on uh, on the person developing their own ability to heal themselves. Hmm. Mm, that's great. That's such an important message. Um, and so uh, the last question I wanted to ask is kind of the doctor's dream. If if we gave you an entire wing of a big hospital and you had the mental health wing of it, what, how would you like to see that set up? How, what kind of rooms would you have? What kind of therapies would be standard? What would you like to see if we gave you this big mental health wing? Oh, I love this question because I think about it all the time. First off, it wouldn't be in a hospital. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Good first answer. Yeah, because I, uh, you know, I, I just spent um, you know, a year – at a forensic state hospital, and and it's uh, it's a very very heavy place, uh, you know where where people have done some heavy things, uh, and you have to work with some pretty scary individuals, and um, but it's you really see these places are 
um, are, are, are kind of cold, you know, and, you know, you, it's, it's interesting, right? It's when somebody loses their civil liberties. So I think that, you know, um, that taking it out of a hospital would be my first step. Cause I always thought like, why can't, you know, it's kind of like before, uh, deinstitutionalization, um, you know, in the sixties when they, when a lot of, uh, there used to be a lot more hospitals. And then what ended up happening is they, they moved towards community mental health. And that's where my father really got started and really developed in-home therapy, you know, bringing the, you know, the therapy to people's homes. But um, all the hospitals used to kind of be in more rural areas, um, you know, and it's, it's kind of funny that you, that you, you mentioned this because, uh, you know, what I would choose to do is to kind of almost bring it back to the more rural area. Um, but you're going to need a lot of the, the medical staff. Um, but I think that, uh it's it's quite the rooms that I would have. Um, I, I I think would would I think I would let the people really create the rooms themselves because uh, it's it's interesting when you get to that point in 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 kind of mental health uh, for the more long term hospitalizations. Because usually it's it's like they're they're not allowed back in the world. You know, it's like things happen and 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 you know this is major mental illness and um, you know it's not a person you know uh, you know a it's not really a, um, you know, something that is, um, you know, really kind of seen, right? It's kind of like a prison. Like, how many people really see into that? But then you have the long-term hospital and you have the shorter-term hospital, um, you know, which is maybe a couple weeks. So uh, my my first thing would be is if somebody needed that level of care, they're really they're really missing some really crucial things in life. Um, and right now, there's a, it's a very much a medical. Uh, you know, using pharmacology, uh, in, and sometimes like using humanistic psychotherapy, you can actually, um, get a order to have medication administered without the person's consent, um, which is a, it's a core process in itself, but you can't have that same process for psychotherapy. The person can, the person can, you know, you know, not want to do psychotherapy and there's no process, but like sometimes that's the most powerful, uh, you know, p- powerful part of, of of healing is that human connection. Um, so I think that sometimes uh, in this hospital, I would make sure that that like true, genuine humanistic psychotherapy was a part of it, um, because uh, you see that um, you know sometimes in a, in a medical setting, um, you, you know, it's, it's sometimes a little too medical. Um, but I but I really think that the, the I would make it an environment that doesn't feel like a hospital. Um, I would really kind of focus on the human connection. Um, and I would also, I would also make sure that it's, uh, that it actually is focused on, on getting the, the person back to a, a point that where they can, uh, really connect with another human being, um, which can, which can be some really challenging, uh, work with, with people with major mental illness. But, um, so that, this conversation, I have a million ideas, but, um, I really think that that was a, quite an awesome question, uh, cause I really think that, um, you know, the, in in the in the field, uh, you know, hospi- hospitals, um, they're they're less they're less and less, um, but it's it's usually for the for the folks that have really challenging problems, and um, you know, so there's a lot there's a lot of work to be done, so to speak. Ah, that is a great rundown. Thank you. I well, I know when I have my next mental health crisis, I know where I'd like to come. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, come on over. <laughs> Come on over, yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing about uh, your work and your knowledge about it and, and moving this forward with virtual healing communities and the, the cannabis healing method. I appreciate your time so much. All right. Thank you, Lex. It's, it's been truly an honor. I really appreciate it. And I hope that, you know, everybody listening, um, so come check out our website. Uh, we're really looking to, to launch here um, in October. We're going to we're going to look to go and actually do a presentation. I would like to present at the Cannabis Exposition coming up in Boston. We're Boston-based, so it's nice to be able to officially launch. Uh, we're in the last few stages of getting everything uh, mixed and mastered and really put together quite nicely for people and and so we're looking to really kind of launch in October, but come check, we have our website. Come check it out. Um, and we, we hope to have you a part of the community because uh, I think that uh, the bigger this community can get, I think the more that, that people will be able to help each other. And that's really what we're looking at. We're yeah. really looking to do. I, I like to consider, I consider it organic altruism. <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah. And everybody, they have, they have podcasts that are going up. They have a book already. Um, yeah, it's, it's already a great spot to be and it's only going to be getting better as they launch. So thank yeah. you so much for sharing about it. Thank you so much, Les. All right, cool. Talk Until to, next talk time. Talk to you soon.